think it's appropriate that we pause and reflect on the saints. It's interesting. We've been studying the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's the lesson that is assigned as the Gospel reading uh, for All Saints Day. And uh, many people don't realize it. Brian explains this in his sermon. But we are all, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, if we have been reborn by the power of His Holy Spirit, we are all saints. My predecessor at St. Helena's, every time he wrote a thank you note to a member of the congregation, would always write, Dear Saint, so-and-so. And, and some people took somewhat of offense at that. They didn't feel that they were worthy of that title. But he had to remind them that in the New Testament, a saint is, and the word saint and the word Christian are really interchangeable. So take a look around you this morning if you've ever wanted to see a, a saint. Uh, the room is filled with them today. Now that, that's, that's heavy stuff if you think about it. There's an, old, there's an old hymn that says, you know, to love the saints above, that indeed will be glory. And so it's a reminder that we are called to, to honor the saints and to remember them. But somebody added a little phrase to that great hymn, uh, their own little ditty. It said, to love the saints above, indeed that will be glory, but to love the saints below, well, that's another story. Uh, <laughs> So, take a look around and you'll notice that we are all saints here today and we are called to love one another, which is a great segue into what we are going to be talking about today. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open to Matthew chapter 6. We are in a continuing study of the Sermon on the Mount. And we come to what is in many respects a transition in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, some would describe this really as the pinnacle of the Sermon on the Mount. And that's an important thing also to keep in mind that this sermon is not just a collection of sacred thoughts. These are not just sacred musings by Jesus the rabbi. Uh, this sermon has a coherence to it. Uh, each thought, each idea, each section builds on the other. So Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 and following is really a build-up from what has gone before. So let's take a look at these verses. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. For truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. 
But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Uh, we said two weeks ago when we met and we took a little break for Canuga, and then we took a break for our guest speaker last week, so you may not remember two weeks ago, but when we were here two weeks ago, we were asking the question, if a person wants to earn their way into heaven, the question is, how good do they have to be? What, what's the passing grade if you want to earn your way into heaven? And we said that so often many of us look at our lives as though they are a ledger book. And you have these two columns. On the one side, you have your assets, and on the other side, you have your liabilities. And if you want to be solvent, spiritually speaking, you want to make sure that you have what? More in the asset column than you do in the liability column. And that's the way many people look at life. And, and they tend to think, well, you know, I'm not perfect, I know, but again, God grades on the curve, and I have quite a few assets over here in this column, so I think I'll probably squeak by. And what was Jesus talking about in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, well, if you really want to earn your way in, you want to know how good you have to be, he says, your righteousness has to surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, most of us, with even a cursory knowledge of the New Testament, would think to ourselves, better than the scribes and the Pharisees. Okay, I'm all right. Because we know that the scribes and the Pharisees tended to be Jesus' sworn enemies. They were always out there trying to somehow discredit him in the eyes of the people. And in many respects, they were responsible for his death. And so we think to ourselves, well, we're, we're better than the scribes and the Pharisees, surely. But we have to remember that the scribes and the Pharisees, at least in the first century, had an extreme righteousness. They took seriously the law, far more seriously than most Christian people take the law today. And of course, Jesus makes it very clear. He had not come to abolish the law. He had come to do what? To fulfill it. Not one jot, not one tittle, he said, would in any way pass from the law. So he said, if they're serious about the law and you want to get into heaven by your own works, he said, you've got to do better than they did. And then he goes through that whole description of all the things that they did that were not enough. You've heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, anybody who has anger in his heart toward his brother has already committed murder. How many murderers in the room? <laughs> and Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, any man who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery. Yeah, the flip side of that, Miss M, there's no doubt about that. It's a two-way street. But how many men have ever walked past Victoria's Secret on King Street? You know, how many adulterers are there in the room? See, Jesus levels the playing field. How good do you have to be? He says, a lot better than them. As a matter of fact, he says, you want to know how good you have to be? You have to be as good as your Father in heaven is. You've got to be as good as God. So how many of us are likely to squeak by? 
See, one of the things that the Sermon on the Mount does is it penetrates deeply. It forces us to look within ourselves to see what's really there. To pull back the curtain and to see really what's going on inside. What God is concerned with, and we're going to see this in the section that we're going to look at today, what God is really concerned with is our hearts. He is concerned with what's going on in our hearts. What He wants is a genuine, authentic faith. Not some cheap substitute. Do you realize that for every Christian virtue, whatever it is, the world offers you a cheap substitute? Always does. The Scripture offers us love. And not just cheap love, but agape love. That self-sacrificing, self-emptying love. The kind of love that Christ offered to us on the cross. What does the world offer us? It offers us lust. It's interesting to note, and you probably know this already, that there are four Greek words that when they are translated into English are all translated as our word love. And let me tell you, you better not mistake one for the other. One form of love is the Greek word philia, from which we get the term Philadelphia. It means brotherly love, the city of brotherly love, philia. There's another kind of love, and that is storge. It means homely affection. Uh, the kind of love that I like to say that a man has for his golden retriever. There's a third type of love, eros, from which we get the term erotic. Some people have said it means romantic love. It does mean that, but it's more than that. It really means something more akin to physical attraction. Lust, almost, in our culture. And then there's a fourth word. And that, of course, is the Greek word, the highest form of love, and that is agape. For God so loved the world, and the word that is used there is agape. And it means a self-sacrificing, self-emptying love, a love that thinks not of self, but of another first. Now what is interesting is that of all those terms, the one that we see most in our world today, the one that we see glorified on television in shows like Game of Thrones or The Tudors or whatever it may be, is what? Eros. Eros. Interestingly enough, it is the only Greek term that is never used once in the New Testament. So here's the one we glorify, there's the one that is never used. So God is interested in looking deep within us and seeing what is there. He's looking for an authentic, genuine faith. And that's why we move from this whole section in which Jesus is saying our righteousness has to surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees to the part where we are today. As I said, the sermon builds on itself. So having said all of those things, you've heard that it said, do not murder, but I say to you, anybody who has anger in his heart has already committed murder. I say to you, you shall not commit adultery, but those of you who have already lusted after a woman have already done it in your heart. That's why Jesus moves on then to chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness what? Before other people, in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. We were at a clergy conference um, just about two weeks ago, and one of the big discussions that the clergy were having had to do with how do you reach the millennial generation with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Uh, they are the largest generation in the nation's history, larger than the baby boomers. 
and they are a largely unchurched generation. Not only unchurched, but to a large degree, somewhat disinterested in organized religion. They would describe themselves as spiritual, but not necessarily religious. And the question is, how do you reach them? And one of the things that we were told is the thing that they desire more than anything else from an older generation is authenticity. They want us to be authentic. Not putting on a show, not appearing to be something other than what we are. They want authenticity. Well, that's what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew chapter 6. He's talking about authenticity. And he's saying that really... The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. So before we take a look at Matthew chapter 6, I want to begin by turning to the Old Testament today. So if you have your Bibles, or if you're looking online, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. It's a familiar story. Many of you, I know, are aware of it. Matthew, 1 Samuel, excuse me, chapter 16. A little bit of background here. Israel had been for a long time ruled by judges, uh, a whole collection of judges who had responsibility for maintaining peace and justice in the land. But we're told that the Israelites were jealous of all the other nations around them. They were jealous of the fact that the other nations had kings. You know, there's something about monarchy that's attractive. I've always thought it interesting that Americans are fascinated by the British monarchy. We, we fought a revolution to get rid of those people, and, and yet we are fascinated by the monarchy. Uh, the queen has as many supporters over here as she does over there. My son has this little motto. He said, let's make America Great Britain again. <laughs> We're fascinated by that. And one of the things that fascinates us about it is that they seem to be exalted. There's a glory, there's a pageantry that is associated with it. I've always said that the British should never get rid of the monarchy. It's the goose that lays the golden egg. Who wants to go to Buckingham Palace and see the changing of the guard if there's no monarch? We are fascinated by all of that pageantry. We, we turn on the television every time there's a royal wedding. We love that sort of thing, and I love it too. Well, so did the Israelites. All the other nations around them had monarchs and kings and royal families, and they were symbols of the nation, and they didn't have anything quite like that. Now, they did. God was their king. Well, they were not satisfied with him. And so they were constantly pleading for a king. And so God finally relented and gave them one. You know, God is going to say one of two things to us in our lives. He is going to say, have it my way. Or he's going to say, have it your way. Generally, that's what God does in our lives. And if you haven't figured it out yet, when you have it your own way, it normally doesn't go well. At any rate, God gave it to them. He let them have their own way, and they got a king, and the king was Saul. And King Saul started off pretty well initially. But it's not how you start, folks. It's how you finish. Do you realize that's true in life as well? 
It's not how you start, it is how you finish the Christian life. Nobody cares that you were voted most likely to succeed in your high school graduating class if you don't. (laughs) And nobody remembers that you weren't voted most likely to succeed if you do. There's so many people that start off well, but they finish poorly. Other people that start off poorly, but they finish well. Strive to finish well in life. Unfortunately, King Saul is an example of somebody who did not. And so the story goes that God decided to reject him. And that's where we pick up the narrative here in 1 Samuel 16. There was a prophet in the land who God called to go and anoint another king, and Samuel was really wrestling with this. Uh, Most human beings do not like change, even when it's for the better. We struggle with change. We are conservative creatures, and that was precisely the case here. So 1 Samuel chapter 16, And the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. I'm tired of the people picking their own king. I have provided a king, you'll notice. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. And Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, that is Jesse and his sons, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. In other words, Eliab was the eldest of the sons. He came in. He was very impressive, evidently. Handsome, strong, just what you would imagine a future king to look like. And what's Samuel say to himself? Ah, this is the one. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees, but man looks on the outward appearance but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord looks on the heart. And you know the rest of the story. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said to Jesse, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God is concerned with what? He's concerned with our hearts. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. 
When it comes to living the Christian life, what God wants is authenticity. And He's always going to look into our hearts to see if it is there. I think this is exactly what the 39 articles are talking about in the Book of Common Prayer. On page 870, the 13th article of the 39 articles has to do with good works before justification. That is, the good works that you and I do before we come to Christ. Even the good works that are done by people who are not followers of Christ. How are they viewed by God? How does God regard those good works? We may regard them as acceptable and praiseworthy, but how does God regard them? This is what the Book of Common Prayer says. Works done before the grace of Christ and the inspiration of His Spirit are not pleasant to God. For as much as they spring not of faith in Jesus Christ, neither do they make men meet to receive grace. Yea, rather for they, they are not done as God hath willed and commanded them to be done, we doubt not but that they have the nature of sin. That is to say, good works that we do prior to coming to know Jesus Christ are not pleasing to God. They don't make us meet to receive God's grace or His favor. In fact, because they are not done out of faith in Christ, we doubt, they said, but that they have the nature of sin. In other words, God is not simply interested in what we do. He wants to know why we're doing it. He's not concerned with the outward appearance, the outward show. He's concerned with the matter of the heart. He's not concerned merely with going to church. He wants to know why you're going to church. Is it just a habit, or is it a habit of the heart? See, that's what God is concerned about. You, you men know this. When Valentine's Day rolls around. You go out and you buy your wife an expensive gift, or even a card. Why are you doing it? Now, are you doing that out of a genuine sense of love? Or is there a fishing trip planned? <laughs> See, it's not a matter of what you do, it's why you do it that really matters. And that's why that great colic that we use at the beginning of the liturgy is at both one and the same time a challenge and a comfort. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom, what? No secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love thee and worthily magnify thy holy name through Christ our Lord. God isn't concerned that we simply show up. He wants us to worship, but he wants us to worship in spirit and in truth. So what is God looking for? He is looking for authenticity. He's looking for genuine religion. That is God's desire. Go back now to Matthew chapter 6. So beware, he says, of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for you will have no reward in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. 
Jesus is saying, I need you to be authentic. I need you to be genuine. Not only because that is the kind of faith that God desires, but that is the only kind of faith that will attract others to me. So we've got to be genuine. We've got to be authentic. We cannot be, he says, like the hypocrites. That's an interesting word, hypocrites. And the Greek word is hypocrites. And do you know what it means? It means to wear a mask. That's what the word means. In Greek theater, whether it was a tragedy or a comedy, the actors would always wear a mask. And that's how you knew what was going on, whether it was a tragedy or a comedy or a drama or whatever it was. But at the end, all of the actors would parade across the stage and they would become anupokritos, is the Greek, without a mask. They would remove their masks so that you could see their true identity. And Jesus is saying, if you're going to practice your religion, do not do it as the hypocrites do, as though they're wearing a mask, polished and impressive on the outside, he said, but something else different is going on in the inside. He said, take off the mask, not as the hypocrites do. This is the same reason why the Apostle Paul echoes this sentiment, but in a slightly different way in his epistle to the Romans. Keep your finger there in Matthew chapter 6 and turn to Romans chapter 12 for just a moment. You all know that the greatest of all the Christian virtues is what? Love. Yeah, it's not a trick question. <laughs> the greatest of all the Christian virtues is love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You know, now abide these three, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is Love, and it's interesting, the Greek word that is used there in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, of course, is agape. Not one of those other forms of love, but rather this self-sacrificing, self-emptying love. Well, this is what Paul says here in Romans chapter 12. He says, let your love be genuine. Romans chapter 12, verse 9, let your love be genuine. And I say it's an echo of what Jesus is saying. He's saying, let your faith, let your piety be genuine. Don't wear a mask. Paul is saying, if the highest of the Christian virtues is love, let your love be sincere. Now that word sincere is an interesting word as well. Sometimes understanding the ancient languages can give you insight into things. The word sincere, sincera, literally translated means without wax. Did you know that? That's what it means. It means without wax. Now you think, what, what in the world does that mean? In the ancient world, pottery was expensive. And people would make pottery and they would sell it. But from time to time, the potter would break a piece in his shop. And so how would he mend it? Well, he would use wax. He would melt down wax and then put the piece back together again like glue. And then he would paint over it, and he would sell it. Take a look at the bowl. You know, it's pretty nice. Pitcher looks great. Fantastic. You take it home. You put a hot beverage in it. And what happens to the wax? It melts. it melts, and the whole thing fell apart. So one of the things that they started doing was stamping the bottom of pottery, sincera, without wax. Well, this is what Jesus is saying. This is what Paul is saying. Let your piety, let your faith, let your love be sincere. 
Let it be what it really is, not the appearance of something. Something broken or shattered or papered over. But genuine. But genuine. That's what the Lord is concerned about here. And he gives us three examples here in Matthew chapter 6 of sincere piety. Genuine, sincere piety. Now the first example, he says, has to do with giving. Look at verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. For truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. If you really want to know if your piety, if your faith is sincere, Jesus says, when you give, and we should give. I mean, one of the marks of the early church was that the early church gave to people as they had need. If you read through Acts chapter 2, those of you who are in the Bible study with me uh, midweek on the book of Acts, you know that one of the things that made the church so remarkable is that none of the people in the early church had any needs. Everybody sold and distributed their goods and gave to the poor as they had need. Now, we said that some people argued that this was an early form of communism. Others people argued that it was an early form of socialism. But we said it was neither of those two things. Why? Because in both of those systems, communism and socialism, it's a forced sharing, isn't it? We don't like to think about it too much, but America really is a very socialist system. When you tax people at a higher bracket than others, and then you distribute that wealth to others, that's socialism. Now, whether you think it's good or not is beside the point. The fact is, it's a form of socialism. But what you find in the early church is not socialism or communism, it's compassion. Nobody's forcing them to share. They are doing it freely. Now, of course, there were some in the church who wanted the praise of men. Turn a few chapters in the book of Acts and you encounter this couple called Ananias and Sapphira. Remember what happened to them? Uh, well, if you don't remember... Uh, just keep your finger there in math and Matthew and turn to Acts for just a minute because it's, it's, it's an interesting story. Uh, this is something for the vestry to consider as a stewardship campaign. <laughs> Acts chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let me tell you what's happening here. There was a man in the early church, his name was Joseph, he was a Levite, um, he was from the Isle of Cyprus, and he had become a believer, he was a Christian, and uh, he saw the needs of the saints in Jerusalem, and he was so concerned for them, they were suffering, they were poor, that the story goes that he went out and he sold an expensive piece of property, and he brought the proceeds of that sale, and he gave it to the church for their need. Now, what did he sell? He sold the last piece of undeveloped waterfront property in Charleston. That, 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 that's the image there, okay? This was an expensive piece of property. He sold it. He got the proceeds. He could have kept it for himself. What did he do? He gave it to the church. And the apostles were so impressed by that, they said, oh, we've got to rename you. Your, your name can't be Joseph anymore. We're going to call you Barnabas. Barnabas means a son of encouragement. You're an encouragement to us, Barnabas. My goodness. Now, meantime, in the meantime, there is over there behind the pillar in the church, 
this couple. Their names are Ananias and Sapphira. They've got a piece of property. They don't think it's worth much. But Barnabas is getting all of this praise. And so they decide that what they're going to do is they're going to go out and sell their piece of property and bring the proceeds and give it to the church and get the praise as well. That, that, that's what they're seeking. So they go out and they sell the property, but guess what? They discover that it has mineral rights. That this property's worth more than anybody had anticipated. And so they sell the property, but when they get the proceeds, they're reluctant to bring the whole amount, so what do they do? They bring a portion of the amount, and they give it to the church. That's what we're being told there in Acts chapter 5. And they give it to the church, and they hold some back. But when they give it, they tell the apostles it's the whole amount. So that's where we are. And they laid it at the apostles' feet. Acts chapter 5, verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? That's why we know it's not communism here. It was your property. You had a right to do with it whatever you want. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, look at this, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it, I'll bet. The young men rose and wrapped him and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, uh, that's the right figure for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church. You better believe. Great fear came upon... That's why I said this is an interesting stewardship campaign. <laughs> What's the problem there? The problem is sincerity, isn't it? The problem is it's not genuine. What is God concerned with? God's concerned with our being genuine. It's not a matter of how much we give. It's the motivation behind it that God is concerned with. Now, this is one of the reasons why the story of the widow's might is so powerful. You'll see up there on the screen, I have it up there. A widow's offering versus the king's silver. You all know the story in Luke chapter 21. Jesus and his disciples were up in the temple courts, and there were these large trumpet containers. And of course, they didn't have paper currency in those days. Large trumpet containers, and you went up and you threw your offering in. And rich men were coming, and they were throwing in large amounts of money, and it made this huge tinkling sound as it went down. And then there came this little woman, and the disciples were impressed with how much money was being put in. Oh my goodness, it's amazing. But there was this widow who came in and she threw in a mite. And I wish I had brought it with me. I actually have a widow's mite. It's the fraction of a penny. And she threw it in, and it was such a small coin, it made no sound at all. And Jesus immediately, the disciples are focused over here on the Bill Gates. Jesus is focused on the widow. And he says, 
Yes, I'm impressed too, but not with them, with her. For they gave in out of their abundance, but she gave in all that she had. You know, we place a great deal of emphasis upon tithing these days. Did you know that tithing is the Old Testament standard? 10% is the Old Testament standard. And then we split hairs about it. Well, is that before taxes or after taxes? I'm not really sure. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. When you go to a fine restaurant and you get good service, what do you give the waiter? How much? 20%. So if we're giving God 10, we're not even tipping the Lord, are we? <laughs> You think about that for a minute. Which just goes to show us that it's not a matter of just giving. It's a matter of giving from the heart. This woman gave all that she had. The New Testament standard is not the tithe, my friends. The New Testament standard is everything. Our souls and bodies belong to the Lord. What God is concerned with is not simply what we do, but why we do it. What is our motivation for doing it? What is driving us? And he says, when you give, give in secret. Now I say, contrast that with the king's silver. I was reading the history of the king's silver here at St. Philip's. And I found out an interesting fact. How many of you know the history behind that a little bit? There's a little booklet. The altar guild gave it to me, and I read it from cover to cover. And at one point in the parish's history, the wardens thought about changing the name of St. Philip's to what? Anybody know? St. George. Now, I initially thought they were doing that because George was the patron saint of England. I discovered that was, had nothing to do with it. It was also the name of the king of England, King George. And so they were going to him, they needed silver, and they said to him, Your Majesty, we're thinking about changing the name of our church from St. Philip's to St. George. King thought that was a pretty good idea. He liked to be considered as a saint. And so he gave this silver to St. Philip's church with the royal coat of arms on it. And then the next paragraph in that little booklet says, And the wardens decided not to change the name. <laughs> But they already had the silver in hand, and we've still got it today. Isn't it interesting that the motivation for the king was what? Recognition. He wanted to be honored, as though he didn't get enough of that already. Jesus said, who's your audience? Who's your audience? I'm going to share a true story from my own life. It's a little embarrassing, but it's true. One morning, I was coming into work when I was in, living in Beaufort. I was the associate at the time. And I had to drive across the bridge from Ladies Island in. It was January, and it was a bitterly cold day. It was just bitter cold. And I was coming across the bridge early in the morning for the morning service, and I saw a Hispanic man walking across the bridge with nothing on but a T-shirt. And he was just shivering. And I drove by him, and I got to the bottom of the bridge, and I thought, oh, I just can't do that. And I had just, that week, purchased a brand new Abercrombie & Fitch coat. 
And it was in the back of my car. It was a thing of beauty. But I turned the car around, went up on that bridge, pulled that coat out, and gave it to the man. He didn't even speak English. And then I turned around and came back into the office. And you know the first thing I did? No, I didn't. <laughs> I did not order another one. Truth be known, I couldn't afford the one that I bought, but... First thing I did is I looked for somebody to tell that story to. I could not wait to find somebody to tell them what I had done. And I, it's, it, the Lord doesn't speak to me audibly, but I think on this occasion he really did. Because the moment the words came out of my mouth and I told a fellow associate what I had done, I never heard. I saw his lips move, but the words that I heard were, you have received your reward. Oh. Not from him. It was the Holy Spirit speaking into my heart. You've received your reward. You, 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 well, I did it, but the motivation was, you know, I was looking for the praise of men. Now, you're better than I am, Miss M, but that's the truth of the matter. And you know what? I got my reward. I got my reward. See, Jesus is saying, when you give, why are you giving? Whose praise do you want? Are we erecting monuments? Let your love be sincere. Who's your audience? Is it genuine? He goes on to say, another example is, when you pray... Praying quiet and pray from your heart. Verse 5, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, wearing a mask. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Now, the Reverend Horace Hawley was a pastor of the Hollis Street Church in Boston in the 19th century. And on Independence Day in 1817, he was asked to give an invocation. And he stood up and he gave a long, lengthy, eloquent prayer. And the next day, the Boston newspaper described it in this way. It was the most eloquent prayer ever addressed to a Boston audience. You didn't get it? It was the most eloquent prayer ever addressed to a Boston audience. It wasn't addressed to God. It was addressed to the Boston audience. And it was an eloquent, lovely prayer designed to impress people. And Jesus says, so when you do your acts of piety, don't pray in order to be impressed, in order to impress other people, in order to be seen as a pious and holy person. He said, when you pray, pray in quiet. Go into your corner. And he goes on to say this, and when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the hypocrites do, or as the Gentiles do. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray instead like this. And we get those wonderful words of the Lord's Prayer. The third example of piety that He gives us is this. Let your fasting be done in silence. What is fasting? It's a form of self-discipline. It's normally done in the Christian life when you are repenting of a sin or you are seeking God's guidance. 
Nothing wrong with fasting. In fact, I encourage it on occasion. Jesus fasted, seeking God's guidance. Fasted, we're told, for 40 days in the wilderness. And I've known many Christians who this is a gift for them. They can really fast. But I remember one occasion uh, inviting a fellow clergyman out to lunch. And he said, oh, sure, I'll go to lunch with you. And I took him to a steakhouse. And we're sitting there, and I'm looking at the menu, and he's not looking at the menu. I said, you already know what you want. He goes, I said, okay. So I'm getting ready to look, and she comes by, and she takes our drink order, and he orders water, and I order iced tea. And I said, what do you think about getting? He said, I'm not getting anything. I'm fasting. And I got to tell you, I was so angry because I felt so guilty. <laughs> but he was telling me he was fasting. I didn't know why. He didn't just say, I can't do lunch today. So when the mages came back, what was I going to do? I ordered the biggest filet mignon you've ever seen. And I thought, buddy, you got your reward. <laughs> I know you're fasting, but I ain't. Jesus is saying, don't do these acts of piety. Don't do these things because your audience is other people. He said, let your love be sincere. Let your faith be genuine. Now, somebody might say, well, doesn't Jesus also say, earlier in this same gospel, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Well, is he countermanding what he had just said? Is he, con is he in conflict with himself? On the one hand, he says, let your light so shine. But on the other hand, he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. Well, how do you balance that out? The balance comes in the latter part of chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. What? In order to be seen by them. There's nothing wrong with praying publicly. It's nothing wrong with giving generously. And if somebody notices that being acknowledged, the question is, what is your motivation for doing it? Are you doing it in order to be seen by other men? Because if that's the case you've already received your reward. And that's why the question is this. Jesus says this. Paul says something very similar. They love the praise of men more than the praise of God. The question is, who are you striving to please? In your own Christian life, who are you striving to please? When you give, who are you striving to please? When you fast, who are you striving to please? The real question is always, who's your audience? And that's why when we come into worship, we need that colic for purity. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. Lord, you know why I'm really here today. Cleanse the thoughts of my heart, that I may what? Perfectly love you, and worthily magnify your holy name. Who's your audience today? Who's your audience in life? When we come back together next week, we're going to take a look at how Jesus moves from talking about sincere faith to giving the disciples an example of prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer. And I don't think it's any mistake that the Lord's Prayer comes where it does in Matthew's version. In Luke's version, 
Jesus gives the Lord's Prayer in answer to the disciples' requests about how they should pray. Here, Jesus puts the Lord's Prayer right in the midst of this whole section on sincere faith. Why does he do that? Simple reason. How you view God will determine how you live your life, whether sincerely or not. There's an old expression, lex orende, lex credendi, lex viviende. The law of prayer is the law of faith which leads to the law of living. How you view God, how you understand God, will determine your motivation for how you live your life. And so we'll take a look at the Lord's Prayer when we come back next week. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do know that oftentimes our motivation is not pure. We do want the praise of men. We do want to be recognized. We do want to be honored. But if that's the case, Lord, then we have already received our reward. Grant us the grace to desire your glory above all things. Take away the coldness of our heart and give us hearts of flesh. You peer into our hearts. You know our secrets. You know our desires. Cleanse them by the power of your word that we may be a people who love and live sincerely. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.